So we're going to be in uh, Matthew chapter 20 this morning. So if you'd open up your Bibles there with me, or it's, uh, it's printed there in your bulletin as well. Matthew chapter 20, we're going to be looking at verses 20 through 34. This is uh, about a week before Jesus is crucified, uh, before he makes his triumphal entry into the city. I loved playing baseball growing up. I actually had to stop playing when I got to my high school years because all the other guys went through something called puberty, and it took me a little while to get there. Uh, but I remember the very first year that I played was on a rec league team called the Bears, and we were awful. We were absolutely terrible. We didn't win a single game. We didn't get close to winning a game. Uh, the mercy rule was called almost every single time. Just bad. But the second year I played, I had um, a little bit more excitement going into the season. I switched teams. I got on a more competitive team in a more competitive league. I was uh, really pumped for the season. And then my team proceeded to lose every single ball game that year. And so here I am two years into my budding youth baseball career, and I've got no wins to show for it. But I've got two trophies on the shelf. Why? Because even 30 years ago, the cliche was true that everyone got a trophy. Now, you may not like it when everyone gets a trophy. I didn't like it then that I got a trophy for losing. It felt kind of awkward and weird. Um, but I, I think that, that that mentality, it kind of comes from a good place initially, where you have these adults that are trying to, to care for these young, tender hearts wanting to affirm them that they're significant, that what they have done matters, right? And, and kids want to be affirmed in these ways, right? They want um, uh, to, to know that what they've done has mattered. They, they say things to you. They do things that you can affirm them in all these ways. But as we get to adulthood, nothing really changes, does it? We want to know as adults that who we are and what we do matters, we want to be seen as significant people. We want to participate in and experience great and glorious things. That's actually not a bad desire to have. It's actually very biblical because it's hardwired into us from the very beginning. The Bible begins with God creating us in his image, a special creation, wonderfully and beautifully making us artistically and then he gave us dominion over all things. Psalm 8 goes on to say that, that God has crowned us with glory and honor and given us dominion over every living thing and all the earth. He has created us with purpose, for a purpose. That's a significant thing. And so there's not a problem with desiring significance, but there is a problem, as we see in our passage this morning, when we confuse where and and how significance is achieved. So we're going to talk about the search for significance and then where you actually find it. Let me read the text for us, and then I'll pray. Matthew 20, starting in verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, that is Jesus, with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. 
he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight, and they followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. Lord, would you do good work in us by your word this morning? We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. So Ray Kinsella was a, a poor Iowa corn farmer. Not a very good farmer at that. He led his family into a state of bankruptcy. Uh, where he was going to lose his home and lose his farm to the bank. Um, and one evening, he's musing on, on this state of affairs, walking through his cornfield, and he starts to hear voices. If you've seen the movie Field of Dreams, you know what the voices said. If you build it, he will come. If you build it, he will come. Ray didn't know what the it was that he was supposed to build, but fortunately, he uh, started to have prophetic visions and he realized the it he was supposed to build was this baseball field in the middle of his farm. And so much to the dismay of all the non-believers that surrounded Ray Kinsella, he mowed down a swath of his corn, this valuable property that he needed for his family to, to live. And he sunk a bunch of money into building this baseball field in the middle of nowhere, Iowa, all because the voices in his head told him to do it. Right? This is insane stuff, right? But then what happens? All of a sudden, once the field is finished, these ghosts of baseball pass, these greats like Shoeless Joe Jackson start to drift out from the ether from the cornfield, and they start to play ball. And he's thinking, this is it. Like This is, this is going to save the farm. This is going to save my family. Uh, from, from absolute ruin. I, I just need to, to get the word out. People need to know about this. They would pay good money to come and see this. So he goes across country and he finds this baseball writer named Terrence Mann, played by James Earl Jones. And he brings him back and they're sitting on the bleachers one evening watching these ghosts uh, play baseball. And as the game is wrapping up, some have drifted back into the corn and Shoeless Joe Jackson comes over to the bleachers to Terrence and Ray, and he says, do you want to come with us? And Ray says, yes, I, I want to so bad. Thank you so much. And Shoeless Joe says, no, 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 not you, Ray, him, Terrence. And this is the conversation that Ray and Shoeless Joe have. Ray says, 
But I want to know what's out there. I want to see it. But you're not invited, Ray. Not invited? What do you mean not invited? That's my corn out there. You guys are guests in my corn. I've done everything that I've been asked to do. I didn't understand it, but I've done it. And I haven't once asked what's in it for me. What are you saying, Ray? I'm saying what's in it for me. Is that why you did this? For you? Ray Kinsella was searching for significance. In our passage, the disciples are on the same search for significance. A friend of mine was, was talking about this, uh, this scene here in Matthew, and he said we probably don't um, have to use that much imagination to kind of know what the conversation is between these sons of Zebedee, James and John, that's going on behind the scenes. It probably went something like this. Hey, hey, James. Yeah, John. What's up? What's up, bro? Um, yeah, you, know, you know how Jesus has been talking a lot about the kingdom lately and how his followers are going to inherit the kingdom? And, you know, I was thinking, we've been sticking really close to Jesus for the past few years, and surely he knows that we are, you know, devotees, right? I mean, we're charter members of Christianity, Right, And he knows that we've left everything to follow him. Surely that's got to come with some member benefits. Like that's probably good enough to get us some sort of prominent position in this kingdom that he's bringing. So I think we should go talk to him about it. I mean, he said, ask and you shall receive, right? So let's go to Jesus, talk to him about it before anyone else calls shotgun. Yeah, you know, that, man, that sounds like a good idea. However, uh, here's the caveat, though. Um, you know how when any of us ever ask any question of Jesus, it kind of comes across as really dumb? Or it's just not the right question? I, I don't want to be that guy. Okay, I got an idea. Let's just get mom to do it. Right? The disciples have done everything they've been asked to do. They haven't understood it all, but they've done it, and now they want to know what's in it for them. Even though it's James and John's mother asking this question of Jesus, Jesus actually knows it's coming from them because he turns to them and says, you don't know what you're talking about. Literally, it's in the plural. He says, y'all don't know what you're talking about. Can y'all drink the cup that I am to drink? And Jesus is talking about drinking the cup of God's wrath as, as a penalty for, for our sin, but these guys are so doggone ignorant, and they want to prove themselves worthy to Jesus so badly, they say, yeah, 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 we totally can, Jesus, we can drink it, we can do it. It just goes to show you that there's a certain amount of myth-making uh, that goes into our, our search for greatness and significance. Either you think that you've done enough uh, that can qualify you to be seen as significant and great, or that you can do enough to be great. Or maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum, where maybe you've been slighted a lot in your life, and you've experienced so much hardship that you're saying, you know, now it's my turn in the sun. We don't just want to be seen as significant. We want to be remembered as significant people, even reaching beyond death. The author, Neil Gaiman, he, he said once that, you know, when you die, they can turn you into diamonds now. That's how I want to be remembered. I just want to shine. President Trump about a year ago, don't worry, this is not going to be political. Um, 
about a year ago, he was at Mount Vernon with uh, the president of France, and he was making a comment to the, to the media reporters there, and he said, uh, I don't know why Washington didn't put his name on this thing, and why he didn't put his name on a lot of other things, too. I mean, if you don't put your name on something, then people are going to forget you. But people are going to forget you anyway, eventually, even if you've done great things. I bet that when you were, um, you were driving in this morning, maybe you got to a stoplight and you, you stopped and you lifted up your, your eyes to heaven and you said, Lord, thank you for the life and work of Nicholas August Otto. Thank you so much. Right? No, probably none of you are like, who in the world is that? Nicholas August Otto invented the gasoline-powered internal combustion engine. Unless you drove a Tesla, that's how you got here this morning. <laughs> the problem with the disciples' eagerness is that you see that, that they believe that significance is in somewhat achieved by what you do, by doing great things, right? They lived in a culture of meritocracy. Guess what? We live in a culture of meritocracy. How you achieve greatness and significance is to do the right things, to go to the right school, to major in the right discipline, to get the right job and marry the right gal or guy, if you can find them, <laughs> um, to invest in the right funds, to buy the right house in the right neighborhood at the right time, to raise the right kind of kids, feed them the right kinds of foods, GMO-free, organic um, get them involved in the right kinds of extracurricular activities, send them to the right schools. But in a meritocracy, you're always worried about your image, about your reputation. You're always jockeying for position and saying, where do I stack up against other people? Where do my uh, mutual funds stack up against my friends? Um, where do I stack up as an employee against the other co-workers of mine? Where do I stack up as a mom against other moms? I read an article recently um, about uh, some research that was done a couple years ago, three, four years ago, uh, on this segment of uh, the population in America called the ultra-rich. Um, it's those that have more than $50 million in net assets. Um, and it, it, it was found out that that group of uh, that, that demographic in America actually does more than anybody below them to increase their wealth. Uh, but they also have a hard time, almost twice as much, more than anybody below them at, at, at feeling and experiencing that their wealth is actually that significant. And the research showed that this is because they live in an environment where everyone has the nicest stuff. You've got the, the biggest houses in the best neighborhoods, the nicest clothes, and the fanciest cars. You belong to the same elusive clubs. And when that happens, suddenly the playing field becomes level. You don't feel as rich as you maybe actually are. And so what you want is you want more to gain an advantage over other people, to gain an edge. Because we're always jockeying for Position. This is why Major League Baseball players like Barry Bonds and Alex Rodriguez, who were already going to go to the Hall of Fame based on their own abilities, their natural talents, while they started taking steroids. This is why celebrities like Felicity Huffman and Lori Laughlin and others participated in this college admissions scheme. 
because you have to get to the top. And once you're on the top, you have to stay on top, come hell or high water. We'll do whatever you can to stay there. But what does Jesus say in verse 25? He says, this is what the Gentiles do. This is what they do. They have such a a focus on being seen as significant, as being seen as great, they will lord their authority over others. They'll lord their status over others. They will use anything they can to gain an edge over other people. But the reality is that a lot of what really matters in life, you can't measure quantitatively. It's only measure it qualitatively. Like, how do you measure quantitatively uh, what it is to be a good parent? Unless you, you know, say, well, I've got 19 kids and counting, right? Um, um, but you can't. It's more qualitative. So what you end up doing is you just start making up stuff to try to gain an advantage over other people. Because someone else is going to be prettier. They're going to be more talented. Um, uh, they're going to have more stuff than you. They're going to live in that, uh, that en- enviable house and that enviable neighborhood that you wish that you lived in. Uh, and so you've got to find something that makes you feel more significant than them. And what we start to do is we start to say things like, you know, I know that he may be more financially successful than me, but at least I voted for the right person. Right? Or we might say, you know, she's got that bubbly personality that's so infectious and everyone wants to be her friend. But have you seen the way that her kids act? My kids don't act like that. Jesus says, this is what the Gentiles do. It should not be so among you. We can't let the other disciples off the hook, though. When the rest of the disciples heard that James and John questioned Jesus about who's going to sit at his left hand and right, it says that they became indignant. They hated them for it. Right? How dare you that you think that you're more qualified to sit next to Jesus in his kingdom than me? Where do you get off thinking that? Right? But as the disciples go out of Jericho, you see more of this mentality. Here you've got two blind men who are calling out to Jesus for mercy. And the disciples try to silence them. Now, Jesus is likely teaching as he goes, right? Walking out of the city. And here's what the disciples are not doing. They're not saying, hey, guys, hold on a minute. Like, Jesus is making a really important point, and we want to hear what he has to say. No, no, no. They're saying literally, y'all, shut up. Be quiet. I know, shut up is not a nice word. Uh, Be quiet. We don't want to hear from you. Jesus is talking to us. He's teaching us. I'm one of his disciples. I'm one of his followers. I've been with him for years and years and years. You haven't. Be quiet. I'm more important than you. Right? I'm more important than you. But we do this all the time, don't we? It can be um, as innocent as cutting someone off in traffic. You're saying, I'm more important than they are because obviously I'm going places and they're not. (laughs) So I deserve the right to drive like I want to. Or maybe it's, um, uh, maybe you're like me. It's it's your favorite sporting event, your favorite sporting moment of the entire year. It's 
uh, the back nine at Sunday at the Masters at Augusta National Golf Club. You've waited all year for this, and you're sitting on the couch relaxing, watching this unfold, and your five-year-old son says, Daddy, 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 uh, can you come play Legos with me? Daddy, 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 can you come play this game with me? Daddy, Daddy, look what I drew, look what I drew. Daddy, 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 Daddy. And you shoo him away and try to ignore him. Because you know what? You work hard for this family, and you deserve to just sit in some peace and quiet and enjoy this moment. Right? I'm more important than you. Maybe you have lived next door to the same people in the same neighborhood for years and years, but you don't know who your neighbors are. You're saying, I'm more important than you. Because there's a lot of people that buy for my time. I'm pulled in a lot of different directions. And, you know, I just have kind of earned the right to be left alone and not be expected to do much or make much of an effort. We're on this search for significance. But where do you find real significance? Look at verses 26 through 28. Jesus said, This shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I know a lot of people, and I'm sure you do too, maybe you're one of these people um, who are here this morning, where you don't consider yourself a Christian, you don't claim Christianity, you don't claim that Jesus is a Lord and Savior, the Son of God, but you really like the teaching of Jesus, and uh, you are enthralled by the wisdom of Jesus. Well, when I read this text, when I read what Jesus says um, here in these verses, my first reaction to Jesus is not, Jesus, you are such a great teacher. You are so wise. You know, my first reaction to Jesus is, what are you smoking? Like, you can't be serious. That's not fair. I've worked so hard to get to the top... Forget that. I've worked so hard to get to the middle of the pack, and you're telling me i got to go to the bottom? I don't think so. But here's how Jesus turns how we look at significance on its head. Because the one who was at the top came down to serve. It's amazing if you think about it. Jesus uses this, this term, the Son of Man. It's the favorite description for himself that he uses throughout the Gospels. It's a prophetic description of the Messiah that comes from the, the prophet Daniel, where Daniel had this vision of one coming from the Ancient of Days on the clouds of heaven, coming down to earth, looking like the Son of Man, uh, to whom all power and glory and dominion was given that all people should serve him. This fits the description of Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Messiah. And he possesses all power. He possesses all, all glory and holiness and righteousness and dominion. And all peoples should and will serve him. But what do we just celebrate in this season? Even if that's true about Jesus, he came first not to be served, but to serve us. As the hymn writer says, he left his father's throne above, so free and infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Where's Jesus going in our passage? He's leaving Jericho and going where? He's going to Jerusalem, not just to make a triumphal entry into the city, not just to have a meal with his disciples, 
He's going to the cross to die for us. He's going to be raised again to life for us, for you, for me. You remember how Jesus went into the city? He, he didn't go in on some tank. Um, he didn't make his triumphal entry on some chariot or war horse. He went on on a colt of a donkey. It, it's this, this animal that you'd strap a, a plow to, a, an animal that would carry heavy loads. Jesus came to serve us by carrying our burden, our load of sin that we couldn't carry ourselves. The one who made you in his image and crowned you with glory and honor and gave you dominion over all things and gave you purpose. The God, the same God whom you sin against times without number considered you so significant that he would come down off of his throne to bear your weight of sin for you and give you his life. It's amazing. Jesus told James and John that they could not drink the cup that he was to drink, but that they would drink his cup. There are two different cups. Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath, but he says, you will drink my cup. It's the cup that is marked out for Jesus from the very beginning. It's the cup that he rightly deserves and, and is rightfully his. It's a cup of blessing. But Jesus takes our F and he gives us his A+. He takes what we deserve uh, death because of our sin, and he gives us what is his. He gives us all the, the benefits and blessings of the kingdom of God, of righteousness and holiness. That's what he gives to us. He does it as a ransom. There's this great exchange. But what does a ransom imply? It implies captivity, doesn't it? It implies imprisonment. And the point that Jesus is making is that it doesn't matter if you are a Bill Gates type who has created uh, some great invention that has changed the face of the world, maybe forever. It doesn't matter if you've made billions of dollars and have given billions and billions and billions of dollars away to really good charities, which is a great and significant thing. But here's what Jesus is saying. In God's economy, if you have not been ransomed by the death and resurrection of Jesus, then you remain a captive. You remain a prisoner to your great and significant sin. And there's no such thing as getting out for good behavior. There ain't a rock hammer in the world that can dig you out of Shawshank. But in God's kingdom, real significance, the, the kind of significance that you can really delight in, it doesn't come by way of meritocracy. It comes by way of what? comes by way of mercy. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know this to be true, right? You, you know that it's all of God's mercy, right? But here's why we need to hear it again today. Here's why we need to hear it again time and time and time and time again. Because we live in a culture that values merit to such a degree that even acts of mercy are considered resume items, Right? And it's hard not to be affected by that. It just fuels what's already in our hearts. A question for you. I mean, kind of in line with this. When, think about the last time that, or the last several times you did maybe a good deed or that you showed mercy to someone and your pride wasn't involved somehow. If you can. 
when you acted mercifully towards someone and you didn't tell someone about it later? Or you didn't think to yourself, you know, I'm a pretty good parent. I'm a pretty good spouse. Um, I'm a pretty good friend. I'm a pretty good citizen. I'm a pretty good Christian. When I start to think of good things that I've done recently, good deeds or, or acts of mercy, I kind of think to myself, first off, like, oh, that was pretty good. I'm pretty great. But when we can't show mercy to others without our pride getting in the way, you know what that means? It means we need God to be merciful to us. Do you notice how Jesus asked the same question of the disciples and James and John's mother as he does to the blind men? He says, what do you want from me? Right? What do you want me to do for you? Jesus is signaling that both groups want to experience God's blessing. So which group deserves the greater blessing? Is it the ones who might ask dumb questions from time to time and um, kind of show their cards that they want a little kickback for following Jesus? But albeit the ones who've given up everything to follow him, that have stuck with him through thick and thin so far uh, for all of these years? The devout followers of Jesus, is it that group? Or is that ones who are trying to jump on the bandwagon because they want to be healed? Which one deserves the greater blessing? Well, it's not the right question, is it? Because as we measure our lives against others, we have this notion that whoever has worked harder gets the bigger payout. Jesus, just earlier in, in the very beginning of chapter 20, talked about the laborers in the vineyard. He said that there were some workers who started at the very beginning of the day and worked all day long. Some started in the middle of the day, some started at the very end of the day, and the master at the end of the day paid everyone the same wage. What Jesus is saying is that God has mercy on whom he will have mercy. He shows compassion on whom he will show compassion. It's up to him. The reality is that Jesus came to pour out his mercy on people like us, not because what we have done has deserved his mercy, but what we've done in our sin demands his mercy. Think about this. The Bible never says that God loves you because Jesus died for your sins. It never says God loves you because Jesus died for your sins. Here's what the, here's what the gospel is. Jesus died for your sins because God loves you. Because he loves you. And that means you are significant. You're significant. So how do we see this work into our lives? Just briefly. If you understand that your significance comes solely from the pursuing love and mercy of God through Jesus, then it actually does a couple of things. First, it begins to unburden you from this temptation to compare your lives uh, against other people. Because if the God of the universe finds you so significant that he would come and bleed for you, what does it matter how you stack up against other people? Just a couple days ago, I was driving in the car with my son, Dale. He's five. And um, I just randomly asked him a question. I said, Dale, what do you think is one of the best gifts that God has ever given you? And he, very quickly, he said, well, Daddy, he's given me the world. And I thought, yes, like, good answer. I, it's like I've done something right. Um, 
But he, he's right. He's given us the world, not just the world, the creation which he has given us, right? He, he made us in his image and, and given us dominion over all things uh, in the earth and crowned us with glory and honor and given us art and given us purpose in this world and, and made us stewards of creation and stewards of relationships. He's given us eternal life. On top of all of that, he's given us the world. He's given us everything. And if that's what God has given you, what does it matter how you look in a mirror? What does it matter what the size of your bank account is compared to other people? What does it matter in comparison to that, that maybe your kids face some issues that other kids don't have to deal with? Or that maybe you yourself wrestle with some mental health issues that other people don't have to deal with. What does it matter? You are significant. But if you realize that your significance is solely because of the pursuing love and mercy of God, here's the second thing it does. It, encourage you, it encourages you to reflect that love and mercy, to show that love and mercy of God to others that are just as desperate as you are for it. And it begins to make you see that the quality of your attachments are far more important than the quality and the quantity of your achievements. The quality of your attachments are far more important than the quality and quantity of your achievements. Because in God's kingdom, strangers become neighbors and competitors become friends when you are humbled by the character of a merciful and loving and gracious God. And we start to live out the gospel and communicate uh, to one another, even those that maybe we never would think that we'd be in relationship with. We, we say, you are unique. You are valuable. You are significant in the eyes of a Lord who comes close to messy, broken crazy people like us, sinful people like us, simply because he's pursuing people like us out of his love and mercy. And we don't always understand why, but thank you, God, that you do. It's amazing grace. It's amazing love. That's our God. That's who Jesus is. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, we... We are amazed at your love and grace and mercy for us uh, through Jesus. Um, Lord, we don't understand why you would, you would go to such great lengths for us, to rescue us, um, to bring us close to you, to yourself, into your kingdom, and then uh, call us sons and daughters. But Lord, you do, and we thank you. Lord, we pray that, that every day this week um, we would celebrate the miracle of Christmas that God became man, Emmanuel, God with us, to come close, to, uh, to take on the life um, that, that we live, to experience what we experience, uh, but to do so uh, perfectly without sin and giving us that righteousness and then dying the death that we deserved because of our sin and then being raised to life for us that we may be raised with him. Lord, may that be filling us today and tomorrow uh, and the rest of this week. 
We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.